Action-packed edition of Rank and Review. I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. This episode, regular contributor Miss Rayleigh Perkins is going to help me discuss six sci-fi scares. And yes, these are science fiction movies, maybe not necessarily horror movies, but I think there's a lot of tough questions being asked, a lot of maybe difficult psychology, and um, I think... The more you dig into it, the deeper you kind of look at some of these things, the more troubling some of these sci-fi stories become. So, yeah, it's science fiction, but look at it through my sort of bent perspective, and I think you'll see there's some genuinely chilling stuff here. Um, But yes, science fiction that has an edge to it. And uh, tough, tough movies here. A weird rank, a difficult rank, because the movies are complex. And our discussions of them are likewise, and there's going to be spoilers, and there's going to be coarse language. I always warn you about the spoilers and the coarse language, but especially for these films, I find, like, the reveals that they have in them are part of the enjoyment of the film. So, I hope you're not going to use the review of your film as (laughs) your first impression of a lot of these, because cherish those reveals, enjoy the cinematic experience. Watch the movies before you listen to the podcast if you care at all about spoilers. Send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankinreview.ca. There are other podcasts that are friendly to Rank and Review that I would love it if you supported. The Terror Table, The Shelf-Shutting Movie Show, Cobwebs, A Gothic Horror Podcast, A Lifetime of Hallmark. Check those guys out. Support them because they have supported me. But now, we got a lot of tough subjects to dig into here. Let's get to the sci-fi scares. Rayleigh Perkins. Rayleigh Perkins is back on Rank and Review, and we have a real nosebleed of an episode for you guys. Um, we're going to talk about science fiction, which um, we haven't covered in a while on the show, but I, I do tend to focus on horror, sci-fi, and fantasy. But I guess, to me, sci-fi is probably the, quote, most grown-up of my preferred genres. Of all the movies that I watch, I think that the sci-fis will be the one that will give me the biggest meal, give me something to think about, maybe even challenge me a little bit. Definitely that's going to be the case in these movies, but not everybody goes into their sci-fi looking for the same thing. Some people like, you know, fantasy in space, like Star Wars, like, you know, 
spaceships crashing into each other or things like that. And then some people sort of like the speculative sci-fi, which is going to sort of show us what the future might be like. And then there's sort of idea sci-fi, which is just sort of like trying to push the envelope of where humanity might be going. And for me, a great science fiction movie can actually do all of those things at once. But do you have a preference? What do you look for in your sci-fi? I kind of like the futuristic space exploration, what is possible sort of sci-fi, I think, of, or like, or just like the shoot 'em up sci-fi in space. I definitely, the space theme is, is, I think is key for me, sort of like other creatures, other worldly, other stuff is kind of what I look for. Um, that would be my preference. I have a big thing for first contact movies. Contact being a really big one of those. I remember seeing it at a young age in the theater and kind of having my brain blown by it, like uh, just being impressed by the scale and the seriousness with which they're taking what is ostensibly kind of like a fantastic story. This is an interesting bunch of movies here because... I, like the theme is science fiction but that's pretty much all that a lot of these movies have in common is that they'd be found in that same section of science fiction um, in a way it sort of illustrates the range that that represents um, was there something that particularly drew you to this list so I have a confession about this list when you sent me my options for this podcast is that I had never seen any of these movies before wow yeah See- I I know that everyone has like talked about Donnie Darko a lot and is like and everyone's like when do you have like why haven't you seen that like that of me of all people they feel like that is a movie that should be something I have witnessed <laughs> it is culturally irresponsible of you to not yeah, have an opinion on Donnie Darko <laughs> but it just like it slipped through the cracks when it came out I don't know why and then everybody had seen it and people were talking about it so I just like never sort of got around to it right and so I, I specifically picked this list because I had never seen or heard of a few of these movies. I'd, I'd heard of a few, but not all of them. So that's why I was drawn to this list. Well, and that might be a good or bad thing. Coming in, like, first time on, like, uh, there's a few of them, the Zero Theorem being a good example of, which my opinion actually has changed when upon revisiting it for the podcast. Um, and, like, they're big meals. Some of them you kind of want to sit on and... Uh, a lot of these movies earn that rewatch. Like, it's one of those movies that you feel like you almost need to watch it again because it's just such a full meal. And I really appreciate that in my cinema. But I can also appreciate a movie that's going to do all the work for me. But most of the movies we're talking about this week, I think, is going to be deeper into the water than, you know, your sort of base Star Wars type of enterprise where it's just basically fantasy in space, like I said. <laughs> Yeah, I felt I had to dig into these a little more. I couldn't just watch on, like, that sort of surface level. I did a lot of, like, rewinding and rewatching and Googling and kind of going down the wormhole of things and, like, trying to figure them out. Using um, different parts of our brain than, say, we were watching a movie like Sand Sharks. Exactly, which is what we watched last time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, well, thank you so much for doing this. Is there anything else that you would like to say by way of introduction before we list off these movies and start the reviews and the ranking? Uh, No, I think I'm good. I think I'm ready to dig in. All right. Well, I guess I should mention what these movies are. Um, (laughs) We're going to talk about uh, Jean Boon Ho's Okja. I hope I'm saying that, that name correctly. 
Um, he just recently won a Best Picture for Parasite. Uh, and uh, he uh, did this really great monster movie called The Host, really weird movie called Snowpiercer. Um, so he's a very interesting director, so I wanted to talk about that. Um, feel special, though. This is the first Netflix original movie that I have lowered myself to review on the podcast. Oh, I feel so honored. <laughs> We're going to talk about Neil Blomkamp's District 9. We're going to talk about Terry Gilliam's The Zero Theorem. Uh, the aforementioned Donnie Darko we're going to talk about from, uh, I want to say Richard Kelly. I will get that correct. Um, uh, here's a weird one called The Endless. I'm not sure how we would qualify this. Some would say it's a horror movie. Some would say it's a science fiction movie. Um, some would say maybe it's in a weird limbo place in between. Um, like a post-apocalyptic even at times. A little culty. It's got a little bit of everything, but, uh, since... It, 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 it maybe not fit into the comfortably into the sort of sci-fi genre. It does fit into this list of movies just in how it kind of makes you work while you're watching it. So, yeah. And then uh, we'll talk about The Congress or Robin Wright at The Congress from Ari Fullman who uh, did Waltz with Bashir. I don't know if you've ever seen Waltz with Bashir, but that's another amazing animated uh, film on a very real serious subject matter. So these are the six science fiction movies that Rayleigh Perkins and I are going to talk about. Thank you so much for being here, girl. Thanks for having me back. Boom. This beautiful and special little creature will be a revolution in the livestock industry. Our super pigs will not only be big and beautiful, they will also leave a minimal footprint on the environment, consume less feed, and produce less excretions. And most importantly... They need to taste fucking good. Expose Miranda, rescued Okja, and bring her back to you. Ten years in planning, on the cusp of a product that will feed millions. And what happens? That farmer girl is going to destroy us. You should know the situation is not good. Each night before you go to bed. So to get it out of the way, I, I, I'm not like a huge Netflix snob. I do watch Netflix. I do have a subscription to Netflix. But I am upset with Netflix as a collector of films. Uh, I had every single adaptation of Stephen King, for instance, until Netflix came along. I had every single Coen Brothers movie in my collection until Netflix came along. Like, they slammed the door on me as a collector. And for the longest time, like collectors like me were their bread and butter. So I've always felt a little bit of resentment. Yes, part of me is just not letting go of the, the past. We're, we're, we're going into a digital age, apparently, and I have to accept this and be a grown-up. But damn, Netflix pisses me off. But uh, usually when we're talking about movies on this podcast, they're movies from my collection. In this case, they're a movie from Netflix collection. But it is a very interesting movie, which is why I'm going to make a special exception to it. 
And and I see you, Bong Joon-ho. I see what you're doing here. You want to make me a vegetarian. I understand this. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's an interesting movie because uh, in the this weird near future, uh, these animals have been created. They're like a cross between like a pig and a hippopotamus, but sort of adorable. And they don't... I'm sorry, say that again? Gentle. And gentle, yeah. And... Uh, they don't eat as much, they don't produce as much waste, and they're big and round and supposedly delicious. And for 10 years, they've had these animals spread all over the world, being raised by different people in different places. And they're going to find the best of the best to clone and basically get onto the supper table. This adorable little girl has been raising Okja her entire life. And on its 10th birthday... Uh, really eccentric Jake Gyllenhaal shows up <laughs> to take measurements and assess the growth of this creature. And she does indeed have a prize-winning creature. But she didn't really fully understand what Okja's purpose was, what Okja's fate would be. And when she finds out this little girl, this amazing, powerful little girl is having none of it. And like one of the scenes early in the movie which made me just know that I was going to love the rest of the movie is when the first time a door is shut on her this little girl runs full blast into these glass doors I don't know how they accomplished it other than having that little girl just do that but it was this amazing scene of like her will and determination and for me it stops being an allegory about why I'm a bad person for enjoying meat and it becomes a story about a very charming child and her passionate love for her pet. That is what I connect to. Actually, more than all the eccentricity, all the weird terrorism aspect, and Tilda Swinton giving one of two really quirky performances that we can talk about in this episode of Rankin Review. It's really trying to keep a lot of balls in the air and trying to impress you with its weirdness. But its weirdness isn't the thing that impresses me the most. It's its heart. I liked it a lot. Where do you stand on Okja? Well, so I had said when we were chatting about it that I had I knew someone who had worked on the film. Like, wait, when was this one done? I can't even bring it here. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. When it was filmed, and he was working on the film, and he like reached out to me and said, like, "You need to watch this movie. It's it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Like, it's really really original." And he sort of gave me the like Cole's notes sort of version of what was going on with it and I so again when I saw it on the list I was really excited because I kind of like the idea of like it was kind of sold as like these clones or these animals that they're creating are like to solve world hunger and to like help the population survive in a more environmentally friendly way because they all these animals are so environmentally much better than like cows and pigs and things and so I really like that premise of yeah. of that side of things but then also just how like capitalism wins out and like screws everything up and like no it's really not about that at all they're just trying to make money and like these animals for like show right yeah. and finance and money and things. so I like that sort of battle between like those environmental policies as well as like just capitalists wanting to get richer and they're not really helping out the poor we'll make a less damaging less obtrusive uh way of of getting meat on the table than we have now 
predicated on the fact that we make a shitload of money doing it, right? And it's a long game that Tilda Swinton's playing. Like, it's been 10 years to get her to the point of production on these things, and people are excited to eat this animal. <laughs> so, uh. And she's trying to the image of the corporation that she works for and all of these things, right? To make it seem like this great, great, to get people to buy in. Yeah. But she's clearly, yeah, she's clearly been rich and powerful for so long that she's lost her mind. She's just a very, very quirky person. And this is something you're going to see all over this film. Like, all of the American actors that show up in this movie are on full-on crazy quirk mode. I don't. I assume that was a direction that they were given, but, like, I guess Stephen Yen kind of dials it back a little bit as one of the terrorists, but, like, Jake Gyllenhaal is just going full bore. And Tilda Swinton, she loves wearing fake teeth, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, really, you know... She's so eccentric. She almost reminds me of like Gary Oldman from the the Fifth Element. She's almost yeah. a cartoon character in this world, which is a strange choice because I think they really want to get our feelings. Like they want to ground this in a reality, but they keep on almost consciously rattling that reality with this eccentricity. But like I say, it's 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 the dog person in me. It's the pet thing in me. It's like the bond. Just seeing your dog for a few seconds there on the camera, I completely fall in love with your dog, right? I just like so there's a weird thing. Kids and animals get past our defenses. So like right away I fall in love with this little girl and I fall in love with Okja and I am invested. When we get to the third act of this movie, and I think it's meant to be for the whole family, like the, by design, I think like kids would be very upset by the third act of this movie when we're seeing hundreds and hundreds of these creatures just like Okja in, you know, very poor conditions, been together, being sort of funneled into the slaughter. And that's when I go, okay, I see what you're doing, movie. <laughs> I, that was the point where I was like, I wonder if PETA has stocks in this movie or who, how is PETA involved in this? Because I feel like maybe it's an ad for them at that part of the movie. Or like, shame on you for eating meat. And even if we have these new super efficient animals, at the end of the day, we're still killing things. But look, part of me does resent that you, the movie's trying to shame me for liking, you know, steak. Steak and hamburgers are two of my favorite foods, and I can't eat sugar and starches the way I would like to, so like, enough has been taken from me. Don't take meat from me too, damn you, movie. Um, but I could see how the argument is persuasive. Um, like... People are against the idea of meat farms where basically meat would be grown in cauldrons and people are grossed out by that. But is that better? If there's no life being taken, like, can we, what do we have to do to make our peace with having meat on the dinner table? I feel like it's a natural imperative. Animals eat animals. That's, that's kind of how it's worked forever. So, um, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with the message of the film if that's what they're trying to say that, you know, you shouldn't eat meat because I am a carnivore and I'm unashamed. But I, the message wasn't so heavy-handed that I felt like the movie rammed it down my throat or that I was being lectured. It was still a, a compelling story in of itself. Well, and as I do, I liken everything to Jurassic Park. Right. And so I had this moment where I was like, you know, in Jurassic Park, it's like, do we have, like, sort of in the second reiteration in Jurassic World, like, we created these animals, we brought them back, so in this case, we created or cloned this Okja species. What now is our sort of moral obligation 
to them because we've specifically created them for meat. So in the Jurassic World comparison, it's like, you know, do, should we save these dinosaurs from this island that's blowing up at the volcano? Because they wouldn't be there if it wasn't for us. Right. So we just let them be extinct. And so I kind of, I was thinking about that a lot in this. And like, we, if, if a company or corporation creates something specifically for consumption to help, is that the same as like a cow or a pig or something else that's meant to be here or or here organically? Is so it better of, that we created the meat or is the meat still murder? I do exactly. feel I do feel like that is in this movie somewhere, the whole meat is murder thing. <laughs> but again, uh, like a plenty of vegetarians will still eat fish. They'll make exceptions, you know, that still means something died to get on your dinner plate, you know. <laughs> It's it's a tough it's a tough sort of thing to get. Well, I mean, sci-fi is the right angle to talk about. It. In a way, I'm sort of surprised there haven't been more movies that uh, discuss this, or like a, a future world where everybody's vegan and we look back with some sort of shame and and grotesquerie on our past where we were carniv carnivorous, you know. Um, but this sort of does it gently. Usually I find that kind of sci-fi, the lecture sci-fi will turn me off right away. As long as the main drive of your movie is to be entertaining, you're going to win points with me. <laughs> uh, well, it gives you those like, little puppy dog soft eyes. It's like, oh, I understand. <laughs> well, and it's not just that Okja is mistreated. In fact, for the first 10 years of Okja's life, it's a lovely existence, you know? <laughs> It's like uh, it's just once they get to the factory floor. It's the whole Tilda Swinton wing of the movie. It would be really nice if Tilda Swinton just had everyone's best interests at heart, but that's just like you said, clearly not the case. Uh, I love when she buys the the animal back from Tilda Swinton that she actually bites the gold that she's given yeah. to make sure that it's real gold. She's got to be a billionaire, right? But this trinket better be legit, right? She's so unbelievably greedy and so unbelievably selfish that she doesn't seem like a real person. Uh, the trick of the matter is, is that real people do exist like this. I wonder if uh, how this movie would have looked if they dialed back the crazy a little bit. And just made them more like, yeah. No, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it like that because I did feel like the American actors or like the more like sort of famous actors were like caricatures of what they should be they're just so eccentric and so yeah quirky like you said but just like cardboard cut like they're just not even like a full-fledged being so maybe if they would have had their own set of like moral dilemmas and problems and likes and husbands and why you know all of those things maybe we would have sympathized with them a little bit more yeah like the jake gyllenhaal character who's selecting the the best of the creatures had a little bit of scruples about it if he was understanding to the little girl. He knows that this animal that this little girl raised is going to be, you know, sent to the slaughter, and she doesn't. And if that clocked between them in their relationship, but no, he's just way too busy chewing the scenery to even acknowledge this little girl. So there, there are there are little things that I would criticize about the movie, but mainly this is the kind of ambitious, different sci-fi. I say it a lot on the podcast, but I'll say it again because I mean it. I love a movie that I can't compare to anything else, right? Yeah. What What can you compare Okja to? 
Yeah, that, and that's when, like, when my friend was telling you about it, and that's what he was saying, like, there's, like, this is so original, like, this is, like, nothing I've ever seen before. For the first time, I have, like, original characters, original scripts, original ideas, like, just all of those things, right? And so I appreciated that with this movie, that it was, and it was, it was long, but it was fast-paced, like, there was some good chase scenes and escape scenes and fight scenes and just, like, like that too like it, I felt it moved along really quickly yeah um which I also really it didn't drag like the preachy parts weren't were there but it didn't like drag on for for too long periods of time gone to the next thing so and like it, it it invested me like I felt in my heart and bones that there's no way this little girl was gonna see Oakjaw killed in front of her like that wasn't gonna happen and yet it wasn't gonna be like old yeah, I, I did not foresee an old yeller ending, and, and we don't get that necessarily. But when we're on the factory floor and Oakja's got caught up in the machinery, I had genuine fear for Oakja and for that little girl while that was happening. So the movie had me. Um, I also really liked all of the nuances of the different languages and how things were being lost in translation. Right. Sometimes unintentionally, like... She didn't really understand what was going on when Jake Gyllenhaal's character was there and all those things. And then sometimes very intentionally. Like, I mean, it was a conscious choice to do that. And I really liked that essence of, like, her really not knowing what was going on. And sometimes it was because of a language barrier and sometimes it was because the people speaking English wanted to keep information from her and she was, like, trying to overcome both barriers throughout the whole thing. And I thought that was really interesting, too. She was such a tenacious, like, unstoppable force, that little girl, too. I really appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. She just was going for it. She wasn't holding back. That is my Okja. I'm taking Okja home. That's how this ends. And I just love it. I just love it. It's going to happen now. <laughs> is there anything else you want to say about Okja? Uh, no, I think that's pretty much it. It was great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I like this director. I talked about his previous sci-fi film, Snowpiercer, which I admire, but I, I have some premise problems with. But uh, it's also worth like watching. If, if you like this, maybe take a look at Snowpiercer. Much darker film, but uh, uh, real, really... Uh, I believe this was... Bef I want to say Snowpiercer was before, but I, I could oh, be yeah. wrong about that. Uh, yeah, it's it's like a, a train that's circling the world post-apocalyptically, and all of society's on the train. It's very strange. I did see it when I was kind of researching this one. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's Okja, and if you haven't seen it, check it out, even though it's on stupid Netflix for jerks. Why are you here? Why don't you just leave? How do your weapons work? I just want everyone watching this right now to learn from what has happened. Uh, Neil Blomkamp is the director of District 9. He's South African, and uh, he set this movie in Johannesburg. And uh, what I really am impressed with right out the gate about the movie is the reality 
in which they're telling this incredible story. It's very grounded, very handheld camera work, a lot of interviews, and they spend the first third of the movie basically establishing the world and introducing the characters, but like presenting a very realistic sci-fi environment, like in a way, especially at the time it came out, that we hadn't really seen before. And the critics went apeshit over this movie. It was nominated for Best Picture. And at the yeah, at the risk of like saying like saying something a little bit unpopular, I think that's overrating the movie. Like I think it's a good movie, but that it might fall short of being a great movie. It's it's one of these ones. It's almost more impressive than it is great because for me, I'm at war with the two halves of the movie because on one half we have this really great social commentary, feet on the ground reality presentation of what it would be like to have basically alien refugees is what we're seeing it's like a a squalor where all these alien insect creatures are being forced to live on the outside edge of the city and they want to relocate them and all the complicated policies and politics of that but once we actually get into the mechanics of the story of district nine then we start tripping over every single sort of sci-fi cliche that we have seen a lot before. We haven't seen it presented this well, I don't think. But still, like, our character goes through a very literal transformation, both inside and out. He becomes sort of a sort of de facto savior figure. Um, he stumbles onto the house of the one alien that has a secret spaceship beneath them. Like... The the, the presentation and the production of the film is 10 stars. The actual story being told might only be five or six. Um, It's sort of like, it it weirdly reminds me of the Harrison Ford movie, The Fugitive. Remember when that movie? Yeah, when that movie came out, everybody lost their mind over how great it was. And it got nominated for Best Picture. And I was like, that's a really good movie. But... Can we calm down a little bit? Can we calm down just a little bit? That's how I feel about District 9. I don't think it's amazing. I think it just has to settle with being pretty damn good. And that is that's not a that's not a that's not a bad thing to say about a movie. It's a terrible place to be. No, but in this selection of movies, strangely, for all of its posturing and all of the great things it accomplished in the first third, at the end of the movie, I had the least to think about of any of the sci-fi movies that we're talking about here. It maybe had the most violence and the most things that you expect to see out of this sort of genre or the more sort of violent, scary end of the genre. But in the end, it's sort of a very familiar but very well-told science fiction movie. And that's where I kind of land on it. I. I, I love, like I say, the production and the main actor. Oh, what is his name? Sorry. Charlotte Copley. He was fantastic, I thought. Like, yeah, he's been in a few other things. I, I wish I could get his name in here, but I, I will splice it in. Um, but he plays Vickers, and he is... This is the first time I'd seen him in a movie. And, like, right away, instant, I'm a fan of you. <laughs> um, because, first of all, he has such a great journey to go on, but... Secondly, he allows you to kind of access him and like him, even when he's being terrible and cruel in the first part of the movie. We somehow don't hate him. We don't see him as somebody who's vindictive or hateful, just kind of ignorant. (laughs) So it's really well nuanced, that performance, for sure. 
Well, and I think when we were talking about Ocean, we were talking about, like, Tilda Swinton and Jake Gyllenhaal's character being these caricatures, and I wanted them to be more real. He's much more real. Oh, yeah. He has a wife to go at the end of the night. He has to pay his bills. Like, he's just trying to make a living. And so you, even though you don't like how he's making his living, you have that sympathy of, like, he's got to pay his bills somehow. Like, this is just how, and his father-in-law owns the relocation, the company that's responsible for relocating so like I have a lot more sympathy for his character because of that like fleshed out realness of him right yeah and the change that he goes through inside and out like when he physically starts changing and he you know his eyes are getting all fucked up like he's terrified I find that a lot of times with these sort of transformation movies body horror movies that like we, we see that they're like horrified by the physical change but we don't feel that psychological anxiety that horror and uh, none of what's happening to him is really his fault. He was sort of thrust into this position. And the people that should be on his side turn on him pretty much immediately. And he is all on his own until he meets this uh, prawn, as they are called, uh, that he actually connects with and, uh, you know, uh, sort of has to level up in a lot of ways, both who he was as a person and what he's capable of. He's very meek and mild and not good at defending himself, and he makes some powerful enemies, <laughs> so... But also, like, reconciling what his, like, preconceived notions were of these aliens. So, like, they're also a family and a kid, and they're trying to just make... You know, like, so he, he comes to terms with that over the course of the movie and sees them as human, or for lack of a better word, I guess. That's not the right word, but, you know, like, they're very... He has those similarities between between the two and so they're more alike than different right yeah well and i i think if you've i i have been to south africa i've been to johannesburg but i'm going to assume that cape town is not super super different um when i was coming into the city flying in i remember thinking like i really hope that my that lee and the people are there to meet me because i have no idea where i'm going once i'm there and if you were to walk into the city from the airport you would have to go through this basic shantytown slum you know with your with your rolling wheel uh, suitcase and your canadian flag t-shirt you could be walking through this terrifying slum and you know uh that's where the poor people live and like a few times a year fire breaks out in there and people die and it's just a haven for crime and those places do exist on the outskirts of these cities but basically what the movie has done is replace these poor people with "Quote unquote prawns." Um, right. The the spaceship shows up and it hovered in in the air. Everyone's terrified, but it turns out that it stopped here because it's the the ship is on its last legs. This was the the only planet that they could find that had any life, any way of sustaining life. But they weren't here to conquer. They weren't here to take over. They were here because this is where they washed up. They're essentially refugees. They're castaways. And with that comes every sort of spectrum of humanity or alien. Like, some of these aliens are probably intensely dangerous. Some of them are completely meek. Most of them are probably somewhere in between. But all of a sudden, the strata of black and white, rich and poor, is kind of completely vanquished in Johannesburg. It's all human versus prawn. I always liked the uh, advertising campaign for this movie. It was like signs saying, no aliens allowed here. And you could wear this little necklace to confirm your humanity so you had better access to things. 
So yeah, in a very unsubtle way, they are touching on a lot of social ills, racism, poverty, you know, the same sort of thing that every other science fiction movie does. It was just approached so directly that it really felt like you were watching newsreel footage for the first third of this movie. <laughs> well, and I think the fact that they did make them aliens allowed them to stay and get away with a lot more yeah. about issues than had they been an actual race of people or group of people or whatever, right? So yeah. I think they were actually able to say... Their, message, their messaging was quite a lot stronger because of that casting choice or whatever, right? So I wonder sometimes um, if that's the thing that made people so excited about the movie was sort of that sort of social-political angle to it. Like, there's a, a meal that you could make out of it. I mean, it wasn't subtly handled in any way, but it was, it was well handled. Mm-hmm. And I think just even the fact that it is in South Africa with the history of the, that... Apartheid, that yeah. Uh, and there was actually when I was doing when I was googling this movie like there was a community that was just wiped out for white people and they were all moved out to the slums basically and it's like this is a very real thing that happened in a very modern time like this wasn't 300 years ago right and so that would have been a very real thing for the people who had been there or had experienced or who were familiar with that history so I thought that was kind of an interesting take to this movie and it's so much more easy to dehumanize a insect or a prawn, as they call them, uh, than another human being. But they do that in the real world. You know, if you're the wrong color, the same thing can happen to you. And we get that. The other thing that I cannot say enough good things about are the special effects in the movie. Yeah, they were excellent. Uh, and they didn't spend a ton of money on this. Like, um, I think that's sort of where his initial talent came from was sort of the digital effects and being able to create these images because it feels like it should they might be like a hundred million dollar movie and it's nothing close that Um, so the way CGI has been so completely integrated into this it would be weird to see the raw footage of what they shot as compared to like what I assume that they had people either in, in green suits or, or washed the, the, some way that they could take them out and replace them with these creatures. But over and above that, they have the background shots because the slum just seems to go on and on forever. And all of these sort of future tech military vehicles flying around. There are so many special effects in this movie that aren't only uh, amazing, but that they're kind of invisible. You, you, you know, you, you, that's the kind of special effect that, in a way, is the most impressive. That's so there that you don't even clock it. Well, and there were times where I wondered if they had actually cut in like real news footage from some time, or you know, like was this filmed for the movie, or did they just find this clip that worked in this movie, sort of thing, right? And, and there were times when I really couldn't tell. I assumed it was all staged, but. Mm. I questioned if it was. So. Yeah, very likely could be some combination of the two, but that, again, says something about the production design that you wouldn't be able to tell between real riot footage and the footage they shot for this film. Mm-hmm. Um, to go to more to the negative aspects of it, um, the bad guys in this movie are really evil, especially the military component of this movie. Like, they really want to kill these prawns. They really want to make anybody who is sympathetic to the prawns suffer, like... Was it necessary that they accused Vickers of uh, having sex with the prawns and smearing him publicly? He had already been infected by this terrible thing, was slowly being turned into a bug. The only uh, benefit to this transformation is that the 
humanity was having a terrible time understanding the how to work the alien tech and somehow by having his DNA mixed with the alien DNA he's able to use the alien tech now so that opens up possible doors for you know military applications but it's something that I don't know it must be a sensitive thing for me I, I hate it in movies where every single military personnel person that we see is evil I understand that like that psychology exists there really is that bully psychology like to that in, in to some degree but it's really everybody everybody involved especially higher up in the chain of command just so eager to to, to destroy like it L and name and yeah pair and yeah I mean, it's it, it's good story-wise so that when they get splattered by the crazy gore effects later in the movie, we don't feel bad, you know? We don't feel like, oh, you just murdered that dude. No, the white hat, black hat thing is very clearly uh, delineated here. But the movie seems to be trying to be more gray in the first third, right? Like, <laughs> what Vickers and these the government is doing isn't great, but it's a situation that's been thrust on them. Uh, what the aliens are going through isn't great, but it's still better than starving to death on their spaceship. There's a there's a gray area there, and the later we get into the movie, the less gray it becomes, and the more black and white. Yeah, they just start really pitting them against each other. Yeah, and against Vickers. Vickers. I want to say Vickers. Yeah. And, but I, like, see, and I really, you said, like, the first third of the movie, and I really saw it as, like, two halves of a whole. Like, that first half was just all the story and the sort of background of this, and this, like, raw footage of this slum and these government agents going in and the the meal tickets and the, like, raw meat hanging on the sticks and yeah. all that stuff. And then the second was just, like, a shoot 'em up action, sci-fi, get out of here, you fucking scum. Yeah. Ah. Right? So, and both of those movies were good, but I don't know that they held hands yeah. successfully. Like, like it almost felt like part one and two, like, or anything like that. Um, I definitely I like the like, no, like the first movie could have just been the like development of this like country. Oh yeah, and then the second movie could have been the like downfall of this country or whatever. Right? It's another one of these movies where I get sort of stuck thinking about where else they could have gone with it. There's a whole. This could be a TV show. There's a whole bunch to explore, but. What was it like when the ship first landed? What was it like when they got their first glimpses of these creatures? Like, how did that sort of, this situation develop? This, I found a similar thing about that ridiculous Guillermo del Toro movie, Pacific Rim, where they talk about the past, where the first time one of these kaijus hit land, it took the military, like, a month to kill it, and it made it so far inland before they were able to stop it. And I was like... Damn, I want to see that movie, right? This That's all preamble to set us up for this movie. And in a lot of ways, I'm more interested in the preamble to the movie than I am the movie itself. Well, and I was thinking about, there's those two versions of that drug movie, Traffic. Mm-hmm. There's like the two-hour like cinema feature-length one, and then there's like the six- or eight-hour like miniseries. Right. Have you seen miniseries? I have. Okay, so in the two-hour one, it's just like the drug dealers are bad and America is good and we're going to do this drug movie and yeah. that's what happens. But I really liked in the miniseries how they like went to India and like met the opium farmers and like flushed out that whole... And it was like... It was very... I watched it when I was quite young and like it was very eye-opening because to me, like drug dealers were those sort of character bad folks who were doing bad things because they were giving good people drugs. 
And so when I saw that side of things, I was like, they're just farmers. Like, I'm a farmer. Like, yeah. we're the same. And so, I, yeah, I was kind of thinking about that, too. Like, just fleshing out those characters. It was good. Yeah. But, like... It's it's interesting, bold sci-fi, and I do like it. I just think maybe it's a little overhyped. That's all. <laughs> like I said, it, it's just going to have to live with being really good. Uh, but that's what I like about these science fiction movies that we're talking about because there's so much in this movie that it could hold like three or four seasons of a television show, and they packed it into a movie. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's what's causing the problems. I really like the movie version of Traffic that you're talking about, but I agree that like having more time with all of those characters like it's such a huge subject that like more will always be more in that subject it's not black and white like I, I like the movie as well but the movie is black and white yeah whereas I found the miniseries was all those shades of grey like the cartel you know and so there's just there's just always so much more to a story when you when you get into it right what seems to be the problem we are dying who's we us ourselves but there's only one of you so it would appear uh, Quinn, how's it hanging? Is it hanging at all well? Hey, sorry. A fear of death, fear of life, fear of open spaces, fear of people. We fear nothing most of all. Are you trying to be difficult? Been handpicking talent to crunch it since before I was hired. Nobody laughs. It's a guaranteed burnout project. Zero theorem. All very hush hush. Zero musty. 100%. Good luck. I give him two weeks. Are you here alone? We are generally everywhere alone. You think my dress is incredibly ugly? My dad used to buy me these incredibly ugly clothes to keep the boys away. Only made me want to get naked. Excuse us. Zero must equal 100%. Where is this place? All in your mind. We're safe here. Zero must equal 100%. What happened to you, man? Life, life happens to everybody, all right? The only reason you're not laughing is because you're the punchline. You have made a very big mistake. I don't believe you. Why would you want to prove that all is for nothing? Close your eyes, and now, big show it in your mind. I know we're connected somehow. Just come with me. Um, one of my very favorite filmmakers, I have to say, is Terry Gilliam. I, I do like him. I've talked about him before in the podcast. He's got this sort of madness it, to him. And it you can always tell you're watching a Terry Gilliam movie. I don't think every movie he's made is like full bore amazing. But I have so much respect for someone who, no matter what movie he's watching, within two or three minutes, even if I didn't know it was a Terry Gilliam movie, get two or three minutes into the movie, oh yeah, here we are. This is Terry Gilliam, right? And say what you will about the Zero Theorem. This is very definitely a Terry Gilliam movie. And it's a Terry Gilliam movie that's sort of playing in very familiar ground for him. We've got a future where the powers that be clearly don't have everyone's best interests at heart. Uh, it's very Brazil, but maybe a little bit earlier in the timeline of Brazil, where things haven't gone completely, completely dark, but it's just on the edge of tipping over. We have Christoph Waltz, who, uh, who is trying to solve the Zero Theorem, which, uh, if I understand the movie correctly, would be a mathematical proof that existence is meaningless. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Sure. I think. Let's go. Let's go with that for the theory. Yeah. Well, again, we there's a there's a lot of soup that we're going to be swimming through here. This is me trying to get my head around it on a premise level. Um, 
He has a support uh, with David Thewlis, who's his friend slash manager, and uh, a really strange, maybe problematic relationship with a prostitute, which the management, played by an uncredited Matt Damon, <laughs> uh, sort of sends to keep his morale up. Like this, this, this classic sort of hooker with a heart of gold, prob- problematic character. So <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff that seems familiar for Terry Gilliam's world and a lot of characters that we've seen before, just never in this context. And interesting flourishes, like here we have the second quirky Tilda Swinton character. She plays a piece of software, which is a psychiatrist. Instead of having an actual psychiatrist, there's this software program that presents Tilda Swinton to you on your your monitor, and she gives you psychological advice. It's an idea-rich movie, and the production value of the movie is amazing. Especially the first time I watched the movie, I was just really struck to the point of being gutted by the fact that I just didn't understand what I was watching. At the end of the day, the first time I watched this movie, if someone were to ask me what did it all mean, I would have to say with all honesty honestly, that I had no idea. And that's a problem. But I watched it again for the podcast, and I have to say I liked it a lot more watching it the second time. I felt like uh, I, there was more meat to it and more stuff to enjoy. And just as far as filmmakers go, if I'm just going to watch somebody sort of play creatively in a, in a, something that's familiar to their wheelhouse, Terry Gilliam's the guy to do this. Like, it would be like watching a Tim Burton movie on, I don't know, uh, on, on a, a haunted house at Halloween. It's just... It's so in Tim Burton's wheelhouse that you already sort of know what the movie is before you watch it, right? And Helen Bonham Carter is in it, just to be clear. And Helen Bonham Carter has to be in it. It's important. Um, so, uh, but, but upon watching it again, I won't say that I understand every corner of it, but I felt like there really is more to it there than just the production values. It is a hard nut to crack. It is a challenging film. Maybe a case could be made too challenging, but I would rather watch, you know, Terry Gilliam experiment than, uh, you know, watch a lot of people (laughs) knock one out of the park. It is an interesting movie. Is it a good movie? Uh, I'm going to say yes, but it falls well short of great. But earlier, before we did this review, before I revisited it, I would have put it bottom tier, like closer to like Tideland or Jabberwocky as far as Terry Gilliam's work that I'm not as impressed with. And now it sort of seems like this is a very distinctly Terry Gilliam thing. And because I live for that vibe, I like it. But because I'm a realist, I also would understand how a lot of people wouldn't. This is some hard cheese. (laughs) So... What did you make of the Zero Theorem? Yeah, I this movie I don't know, and that's pretty much like the end sentence. So I I tried to watch it the first time and was like, I have no, I think I was like three quarters of the way through, and I was like, I have no idea. And I I try not to Google movies like before I watch them. Like I kind of try and go into them fresh and with all the other pieces behind me and then afterwards I'll like kind of dig into them if I need to and I was like 
nope, can't, just have, like, who are these people, what is, what is that, like, I just was lost, like, completely, like, it just made me feel so dumb, (laughs) so dumb, and so I, like, stopped, took a break, texted our mutual friend Lee, was like, tell me more about this, what can you tell me about this movie, and he went on the Gilliam Ranch and told me all about who he is, and a little bit more about him, and I was like, okay, so I, like, sat down, I'm like, I'm doing this, like, I, I've got this, really, <laughs> like, and I just, like, I could not follow it, I could not, I couldn't follow it, like, I just, like, confused, and, like, and I think I've referenced this before when you and I have talked on the podcast, like, I was really young when Being John Malkovich came out, and we went and saw that in theater together, and there was, like, all, all of these people that are now on your podcast were in the theater, and you folks all came out and were like, yes, that movie, and I was just like, oh, man, don't say anything, because you have no idea what you just watched, and they're going to know you're a fraud, like, don't say anything, and so, like, I then rewatched Being John Malkovich and was like, oh, I get it now, <laughs> okay, but I, like, do I want to watch this a third time to try and get it? Like, I just don't know. I it, just don't know if I have it in me. For certain, like, and to a certain extent, if you need to watch a movie three times to get it, that's yeah. an awful lot to ask of somebody. Yes. Um, I think that it is him, Terry Gilliam, playing in his familiar sort of territory, like I said. And I can get a lot out of it. And the second time, I appreciated more of the humor. Like, Terry Gilliam was the only American member of Monty Python's Flying Circus, right? Like, his sense of humor or his idea of things that are funny may be different than ours, but, like, when when our protagonist is walking down the street and there's a digital advertisement that's literally following him pace for pace, yelling at him as he's like, he can't escape it, uh, the first time I just was lost in the production design. The second time... I kind of smiled and thought, yeah, that's actually not that far off, is it? Like, that level of aggressive advertising. The first time I watched the movie, I was really off-put by the fact that Christoph Waltz always refers to himself as we. Yes. Like, it's so obnoxious. Like, he clearly does think that he's somehow better and above everyone else. He doesn't want to work in, like, it's a very unpleasant environment, but... He wants to work at home. He wants to do... He does a really good job at what he's doing, but he wants to minimize his exposure to the rest of the world. And he also wants to be distinct and unique and, like, somehow stand out from the crowd. And I think that's what this sort of identity thing is. And part of the movie is him needing to get over himself, I think. But, again, and this is me going into my theory of the movie. I I won't say this is what the movie is. But if we get to the zero theorem and all this sort of crazy, and I think, again, I appreciate it more a second time out, the visualization of this mathematical problem that he was trying to do as a bunch of boxes that are getting stacked. And he, yeah. he may solve one equation, but by solving that one equation, another tower of boxes will fall because the math doesn't line up anymore. I thought that was way more interesting to see than like just numbers on a screen. But if we put this sort of thing, you know... Uh, the meaning of life right now he gets it up to like 97.8% but it has to equal zero has to equal 100% I think it's implicitly said by management that basically he is the zero theorem 
his need to prove himself as different and better and other than everyone else and to prove that he can solve this this impossible theorem that will disprove the validity or point of existence is something that only he is capable of because he is himself the embodiment of the zero theorem all of his effort to be us all of his effort to be different is all just in the service of proving that there's no point to being different there's no way to stand out you're lost in the machine you are a cog in the machine and even if you are the guy that solves the zero theorem no one's going to acknowledge you no one's going to recognize you no one fucking cares dude you don't care the his character of, like rejects this the, the 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 prostitute character is the most problematic character in the movie for me but she's been hired by management basically to keep his morale up and she is very charming in her way but she somehow falls for this guy and i don't know why i don't know what about him is attractive or appealing in a lot of ways and even to the end he chooses the zero theorem over her which it was the one thing in his life that was actually giving him happiness and he still chooses to do what makes him miserable like Christoph Waltz's character is a tough nut to crack just like the movie itself but it does get me thinking like all of this stuff is going on in my head I'm trying to put it together what does his relationship with that prostitute mean what does his relationship with David Thewlis mean David Thewlis seems to really value him as a friend, even though David Thewlis gets nothing back from him. What does right. he have? What is it about this character? And I think if we could answer those questions, or if we believed that there were answers to all these questions, then the movie would be amazing. Instead, this is a movie that just asks a bunch of questions and then kind of walks away from them. And it's pretty to look at. It while is. They ask and just I think like. That's what got me. The fact that he's doing all of this futuristic work in a burnt out like church, like that, <laughs> that feels like it should mean something. He lives in this vast open space cathedral area, and everybody else seems to be living in these little. That's like, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> the movie is almost impenetrable, but whereas the first time I felt like at arm's length to it, I felt like maybe it was solvable this time. So I feel closer to it, while at the same time, like, it's a tough thing. Like, I would say, if you like Terry Gilliam, definitely give it a watch. But on this list of sci-fi movies, I just don't know how high it can rank. Like, it's a lot of work. Maybe too much. And for someone like me, who just really likes, like, terrible movies that don't make me think at all this was just like out of my brain like I just don't want to do the work yeah. I just want to enjoy the next two hours and not have this like existential dread <laughs> sometimes you want to watch you know tremors <laughs> there's underground worms that eat people it's uncomplicated Friday the 13th what's happening now Jason's killing people great this movie is, it almost, like, and there's a couple other movies on this, this list that does this. It seems almost deliberately trying to keep you confused or on your toes. And if you're going with the movie, that can be a great place to be. But if you feel lost, you're going to feel lost for two hours. And that's not a great place to be. And I think, too, if I would have had someone else, like, I watched this one by myself. And I think if, like, I would have watched it with someone that I could like talk it out kind of afterwards or like while it was happening I maybe would have engaged there like like pulled it apart 
a little more, but because I was just staring at the screen like, what? What? I don't know. <laughs> I just kept saying that the whole time. I like individual pieces. I just don't know where they fit. This relationship he has with this 15-year-old computer hacker who's the son of management, who is equally standoffish like he is. The kid's thing is he calls everybody Bob because he feels it's a waste of energy to learn people's names. So he seems to be on a similar track as, as the Christoph Waltz character, Cohen. Uh, but we, the more we learn about him, the more he doesn't seem okay with it. And then suddenly he has some kind of terminal illness. And then suddenly he's just gone from the movie. Yeah. What was that for? What did it mean? What did it contribute? I don't know. Mean. Yes. What does it mean? Um, that, like I said, the first time I watched it, the what does it mean, I found frustrating. This time I found it more intriguing. Who knows where I'll end up next time. But um, like I said, <laughs> that's a lot to ask of your viewers. This is yeah. not the most accessible Terry Gilliam. Like, if you're going to be an entry point of Terry Gilliam, I would, you know, refer you to, like, the Fisher King or Munchausen or Twelve Monkeys. Like, these are movies that I think are a little bit more accessible. But if you're going to jump in with Tideland or The Zero Theorem, you might wonder what the fuss is about. Um, Terry Gilliam is the real deal, and I still believe that. I do. Um, I just think this one is, it's tough. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I don't know if I could do it a third time, and I don't know if I want to. <laughs> Lots of times, I'm like, I want to do it again. I want to figure this out. I got this. I yeah. got it. But I just didn't care. Fair enough. Donnie is experiencing what is commonly called a daylight hallucination. <laughs> I have to obey him. He saved my life. Have you ever seen a portal? <laughs> Has he ever told you about his friend Frank, the giant bunny rabbit? The what? Every living thing follows along a set path. And if you could see your path or channel, then you could see into the future, right? I'm not going to be able to continue this conversation. Don't worry. You got away with it. What is going to happen? I only have a few days left before they catch me. We're just going to stop. You should already know that. So speaking of sci-fi films that are kind of tough to get your head around, especially the first time, <laughs> Donnie Darko. <laughs> uh, Richard Kelly is the director, we've decided, yes? Um, I remember seeing this movie for the first time. VHS had never heard of it. Like It had a very brief theatrical run, but it basically just showed up on video one day. And I watched it with my friend Kevin Stiller and a few other people, and I remember my mind was blown by the movie. Uh, I was younger and I'd never seen anything like it and I didn't fully understand it but I understood that I liked it and that I chose to get excited by this filmmaker. <laughs> and then he made two more films and has basically disappeared. He made, uh, I think, 
quite terrible science fiction movie called Southland Tales. And he made an adaptation of a Richard Matheson short story called The Box, which is a really good short story, but an only kind of so-so movie. So uh, in a way, like he never sort of proved the promise that Donnie Darko kind of showed. uh, I wouldn't necessarily like I'd watch another one of his films, but like it kind of rattled me. So when I go back to Donnie Darko, was it just that my mind was blown, but there was nothing there? Or is there something to this Donnie Darko movie? Like when you said at the beginning of this podcast, you hadn't seen it. It seems if you're of a certain age, you're like culturally obligated to have an opinion on Donnie Darko. Some people hate it and think it's pretentious. And some people think it's brilliant, (laughs) you know. And um, I started out thinking it's brilliant. And now I'm sort of, I've calmed down a little bit. Um... I understand the sort of tangent universe storyline that they're getting to, like the nuts and bolts of the plot, which I was largely lost on me the first time. I feel like I've conquered that. Um, But I I think upon becoming familiar with the movie, I sort of appreciate how it takes its time, how much it respects its viewers. Like there are a lot of difficult philosophical ideas that they're trying to put on you. And it assumes that you're going to keep up. They'll give you one little tiny piece of information very early in the film and just expect you to ride the line until it pays off. That and the fact it's weird to watch all of these interesting actors showing up in the background. Seth Rogen and and, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and um, like a lot of people who would sort of sprout up to be bigger stars later on show up in background scenes throughout this movie. But... I think what most people know Donnie Darko for is A, it's the movie that introduced the world to Jake Gyllenhaal, even though he's been a, a, an actor since he was a, a kid. Um, and B, you know, the whole what does it mean? What is Donnie Darko? Is Donnie Darko a superhero, a supervillain? Did he end the world or did he just end himself? <laughs> what does it all mean when it's said and done? Um, why is it significant that it be set in the late 80s? <laughs> uh, yeah. Why uh, the, the image of the rabbit that we are being haunted by? I mean, I, mean I, I know it pays off like narratively towards the end of the movie, but why is Donnie initially fixated by this? Is it a premonition or has he done this loop before? We have time travel. We have parallel universes. All sorts of crazy stuff is being fed to us. But it's also kind of funny, and it also has a lot of nice dramatic payoffs. And, you know, Patrick Swayze playing a pedophile. There is a lot. A motivational speaker, exactly. There's a lot in this movie. And I I get that it's a tough nut to crack, and a lot of people just sort of walk away, throw their hands up the air, and say, I don't get it. It's too much work. I think Donnie Darko is very rewarding to the patient viewer. But I will also agree, it's not for everyone. For all of that, where do I land? Is it brilliant or is it pretentious? I kind of land somewhere in the middle after all is said and done. I do like the movie. At the end, it's a thumbs-up review, but um, I do think that it's almost too hard on its viewers at a certain extent. It's I don't mind doing some of the work, but like <laughs> it, it's almost impenetrable. But And I will let you get your words in. Uh, you'd asked when we were going to do the review, should you do the director's cut or the theatrical? And I suggested that I preferred the theatrical. I did the theatrical. Yeah. And 
The director's cut gives us more explanation, goes a little bit more into the philosophical aspects of time travel, and he has a couple of nice scenes where you can sort of feel him saying goodbye to his family as that time loop is about to close. Uh, they don't know he's saying goodbye to them, but at least he gets a chance to say goodbye to them. And those are nice scenes, but in the end, it's just adding 20 minutes onto a movie that is already pretty long and slow-paced. Um, and in a way, the intangibles are kind of what ended up being the charm to the movie. I feel like I had more passion and love for the movie before I'd figured it out. The more I feel like I've got my hand closed around the movie, the less special it's sort of become to me. So I loved Donnie Darko when I first saw it, and now I just like it a lot. <laughs> but well, you have never I've... seen it before, so where did you oh. come in? So I think because like it's 20 years old, and so it's not new. I've heard all the people talking about it, raving about it, and it comes up on all the lists of cult classics and blah, blah, blah. And I've just kind of, I've actually managed to somehow really avoid knowing anything about it. It, other than that it existed like no one spoiled it for me I just knew that it was like a bit of a mind bender fuck like whatever and um and so I like which I think a lot of people didn't know going into it yeah. right and so I think if I would have watched it in its initial rush like in its initial fame when it started to gain popularity I think I would have probably enjoyed it a little bit more just because it was that sort of novel piece of like not knowing that that was going to be the twist at the end like I knew there was a twist right I just didn't know what it was and so um I loved all the characters in it though like Drew Barrymore as the English teacher and Patrick Swayze as like creepy and the the church lady who oh. was like sometimes Ray Lee I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion yes like, <laughs> he had that like twisted suburbia sort of feel like dark suburbia that I just love like I just love that that feeling of it um, but I kept I didn't just watch the movie I kept trying to figure it out before it happened instead of just like letting it happen and so like did I I think I had higher hopes for the movie because I watched it so much later in life like I was like expecting it to hold up a little bit more and I just I thought it was good. Like, I actually did watch it twice for this podcast. Like, the first time just to figure out what was going on. And, or just to, like, see. And then kind of the second time knowing the end piece to kind of, like, put all the pieces in. Um, and I still had a lot of, like, questions and, like, unanswered questions and, like, things that I was like, what? Who is that? What? Why is this, like... And I really loved the ending. Like, I just... Like... It, even if the whole with the girl on the bike being like who is that do you know that person like yeah. and then she just like it just like goes to black and you're just like oh what and then it like then my mind just like started to be like what <laughs> and I was like thinking about all of these things and being like okay now I need to go piece it all back together and figure out like all of the elements so I did enjoy this movie I just think I would have enjoyed it a lot more 20 years ago right. 15 years ago for it kind of got ruined for or not ruined but kind of pulled apart for me I kind of thought the twist was going to be bigger too oh, yeah. like and like I was like oh okay <laughs> just like, well it's a tangent universe I actually used Donnie Darko well, when I'm talking about 
franchise movies, like the Halloween series, for instance. There's a Donnie Darko tangent universe where uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis character, you know, is killed off and uh, the Michael Myers is her brother. But then there's another tangent universe where that didn't happen. And there's another tangent universe where, you know, there's the Cult of Thorn. Uh, you can still have all those movies. that they, they just happen in different sort of tangents. And that's basically what Donnie Darko is happening. Like, he's told by Frank, this scary bunny figure, that the world's going to end. And by the world, he means this tangent universe. And the interesting thing about Donnie Darko, and it does sort of sound like a superhero movie, and if you went into the movie expecting some sort of action sci-fi extravaganza, I can see you being bored to tears by the movie. I think expectation could maybe hurt you, but the interesting thing is, yeah, the, that universe is going to come to an end and everything's going to reset. Um, and Donnie's okay with this because then the Jenna Malone character is not going to be killed and a lot of these terrible things that happened aren't going to happen. But it's not completely clean either. Because by doing that, by by staying in his room and having the room collapse on him and he's dying, the Patrick Swayze character is not going to get exposed. He's going to continue going on doing what it is. So, like, yeah, that girl's not going to get killed in that car accident. But Patrick Swayze isn't going to get caught. Right? So it's not it's not perfectly clean. It's not like everything is hunky dory. Um, and no, and uh, I also really connected to Mary McDonald this time watching the movie. The mother, Jake Gyllenhaal's mom. She knows that her son's not well, but she has that meeting with the psychiatrist, and she realizes that his son has an imaginary friend who's a rabbit who tells him to do things. And she tries to keep her composure while she's talking to the psychiatrist and saying, you know, well, if you think more medication will help, then then we'll do yeah. that. But like you can see her heart breaking and she is so good at the end of the movie when her son has died and she waves at the stranger at the end of the lot like they don't know each other. They don't know the significance of it, but they feel the significance of it. And that's all just performance. That's all just in the acting. And I just, I have such respect for that. Mary McDonald can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned, but she doesn't have a big role in this movie and she gets me right in the feels. Well, and there's that line. There's a couple great scenes. Yeah, actually, I like that you brought her up because the very like kind of opening scene where they're like bickering at the dinner table and the kids are swearing and the mom and dad are just like, yeah. there's like nice like middle class folks trying to just like have a nice family supper and they they like suck a fuck and like all these like and then the little girl's like what does that that mean and yeah like, and then she to the bedroom and she's like our son just called me a bitch <laughs> like, this is very, like she knows he's struggling and like knows he needs help and just like yeah can't can't help him doesn't know what to do to help him right yeah and at the meantime is getting like berated by him and like just treated very awful because he's kind of a dick to her right but she knows he can't help it yeah no that's a good point i hadn't thought about her as a character that much but yeah. he was really good yeah um and just there's some great tiny throwaway lines like uh when the school gets flooded and the, those little girls have that exchange apparently the the school's been flooded by feces what is feces <laughs> baby mice <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's this whole conversation about smurfs and like the 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 origins or the sex life of Smurfs, and uh, again, it doesn't feel 
needed to the movie, but I'm really glad that it's there for some reason, you know? Well, and it's one of those movies that because I hadn't seen it, I kind of heard those pop culture references, but couldn't contextualize them. So now that I've seen the movie, I'm like, oh, they were quoting that movie. Oh, I get it now. That was funny. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't get it at the time, and I just smiled and nod. <laughs> Um, I do think that the movie's emotional wallop uh, kind of saves it in the third act. I think even the first time I saw it when I didn't really get anything, just the emotions of the end of the movie kind of make it feel powerful, even if it doesn't all completely fit to you. But I will say there's in a weird way diminishing returns to Donnie Darko. In that the, way, the more I revisit it, the more I solve the puzzle. In a weird way, the less interesting it has become. Um, and then I just sort of appreciate some of the technical filmmaking or some of the musical choices. A lot of movies set in the 80s go for the really obvious kind of, you know, safety dance, girls just want to have fun, goofy 80s, instead of sort of the, for lack of a better world, cool, edgy, indie 80s music. So I appreciated yeah, you know, it. Great soundtrack. And like that it wasn't garishly ugly 80s. It was just, you know, this is what the tail end of the 80s looked like, except it, <laughs> you know. Um, but again, why was it necessary that the story be told there? It seems like an almost needless layer of complexity to add to the movie. <laughs> like, yeah, it could have really been set anytime, anywhere. It didn't, and there, it was, yeah, there was such a point to having the dates. Like, it was very, very specific that they wanted you to know when this movie was happening. It was just the flavor they were going for. I don't. I, I I like it. I used to love it. I just like it a lot now. But I do think it's worth your time. I think you're right, though. I, I like this movie. Kind of had its time where everybody was talking about it, and now we've moved on to other things. But it's still this interesting curio. And I feel like we were just my friend and I were talking about Fight Club the other night, and how like now if I were to like watch Fight Club for the first time, I'd just be like, oh, Fight Club. Yeah. But because I watched it then, you know, like it hit me a lot harder than me. Maybe it would hit me now, um, and so I, th- I think this that this movie. If I were to like put two movies together, like I mean, nothing the same, but like kind of the same. <laughs> that I, I feel like that would be similar. Like if I would have visited this initially, I would have been more blown away. Yeah. But twenty years later, it was just good. I'd recommend it. I'd watch it again. Like it's fine, but. I'd have people that I'd be like, you should watch this movie. That's like my bar. Do I have people I can recommend this movie to? But it's meditative. It's it's a thinker piece. And I think in a weird way, it kind of looks like it's a more brooding action thing. And it's just not that. No. I would say, honestly, like, uh, District 9 and Oakja were, like, the most, like, action-y pieces on this list, for sure. Yeah. But it, it pays off. It's worth a look. I used to make a lot of your clothes. You remember that? They're all in, like, their 40s. They just look young. It's weird. Why come back now? The video you sent. What video? How is that possible? You want to know what runs all this? You go find it. Who's next? We can't go back to our lives knowing that there's actually something out here. It doesn't let me sleep. It doesn't let me dream. 
cheating or not this might be closer to horror or than it is maybe to science fiction i guess it does play with like time loops and uh maybe an alien creature lovecraftian monstrosities uh this is a filmmaking duo justin benson and aaron moorhead who are also the stars of the movie the the two main characters are the writers and the directors of the film and they have escaped from a ufo cult and have been living together for some years and not very happily when one day a video cassette shows up on their front door and the younger brother sees people from the cult he grew up in people he got along with and enjoyed his upbringing basically sending a goodbye message saying that they were going to this ascension or whatever presumably they were all going to kill themselves and he convinces his brother, it takes a bit of doing, but he convinces his brother that they need to go back uh, just to check in on the people or at least say goodbye, have some closure with this cult that he grew up in. Um, and it's an interesting relationship between the two brothers. Um, the brother who is older believes that he's rescued his younger brother from this terrible situation, but the younger brother is so unhappy with the way his life is now that he seems to have painted a skewed vision of the cult lifestyle that he'd escaped as a young man and the this war of wills is kind of what you think the movie's going to be about is is this kid gonna the younger guy gonna get wrapped up in this cult and is the bigger brother going to be able to get him out of it what's the the conflict going to be and the interesting thing about this movie is it's continual reveals just when you think you know where it's going it's going somewhere else and when you think it's going there it goes somewhere else again. <clears throat> They've uh, done a couple other movies before this, but uh, one's called Spring, which I reviewed for the show, which is a really fun, romantic, strangely enough, monster movie. But the other one, Resolution, is particularly interesting to this movie because they're actually directly tied together. You don't need to have seen Resolution to appreciate The Endless, or you don't need to see The Endless to appreciate Resolution, but they coexist. That universe right exactly like, they yeah. at one point meet a guy who's tied to the this pole in the house and he says his friend has been trying to get him off drugs right. those two characters are the main characters of the movie resolution okay so there's a lot going on in the movie and i'll come out the gate right away saying i'm a big fan of the movie it's one of those movies that you have there's a a but to it there's a frustrating aspect of this movie, and I think it's uh, in a lot of genre movies, and we tend to let it go, but in this movie, I get frustrated with characters who will not explain things. Like, the younger brother wants to have some autonomy and control in his life, but he never says that to his brother, right? The cultists know that uh, once the, the third moon symbol comes up, their time loop is going to stop, start again. And if these two brothers are still there, they're going to get caught in this time loop and be, you know, forced to live this, yeah. this circular life, which ends in a death, all for this amusement of this Lovecraftian alien that lives beneath the lake. 
But they never say that to them. They never say, you should leave here because if you don't, you'll be trapped here forever. No one ever anywhere in this film just says what's going on. And that's all it would take to solve the problem, to solve the riddle, to make the movie stop happening. But I don't want the movie to stop happening. So I have to just allow this to continue. But it, it is the one real problem of the movie that I find very interesting. There's so many cool ideas, so many cool characters. The idea of these time loops of various lengths and how the people deal with being inside of them. The whole relationship. Like, like All of the component parts of the movie are individually interesting. But I'm frustrated with the characters' inability to communicate with each other. <laughs> it's more in the service of keeping the viewers interested than in the reality or I guess if you can call that reality of this really crazy story. I guess what I'm saying is I really like the movie, but I have to acknowledge there's some problems with it. But I mainly just think like this is a low budget, super ambitious, full of great ideas movie. And I, I can't knock it. Like if someone said, should I watch The Endless? I would say absolutely yes. I really like this movie a lot. Where does Ray Lee land? So I watched this one earlier on in this in the sixth podcast, and I actually watched it on a date. Like oh. I, and maybe that wasn't the best date movie. Okay. Uh, <laughs> being like, yeah, so these are the movies I watched for this podcast, and they're really great. And then I had to like explain to her all of these things that happened, and I didn't even really know. Um, but I quite enjoyed it because I never like you said like I thought I was like oh it's going in this direction and then it didn't and then you finally kind of get into the next story and meet the next group of characters or the next plot like time loop whatever was happening I was like oh okay and then it switched it up again when you find the woman whose husband shot like is missing and she's like looking for him I was really intrigued by that storyline and then when we finally meet him kind of later on but like in a different time loop, like, I had no idea how it was all going to tie together, and it really didn't kind of tie it all together, but it, it didn't, like, it was okay, like, it tied, it, it, yeah, you never get answers, you don't really know, none of the characters ever figure any of these other time loops out, and you don't really answer any of your questions, or any of those characters end up meeting back up, but somehow it, like, it just really worked for me, um, and I didn't mind that that happened that way. And so I, and I actually like as much as, you know, it sucked that they were going to get sucked back into this cult life or whatever. I like kind of understood the brother, the younger brother. I was like, they're working all the time. They have shitty jobs in a shitty apartment, shitty food. They could go and like hang out with these cool people. And there's women that seem actively interested in them. You have a shared past there's a lot of the stuff that his brother told him were outright lies the men don't have to castrate themselves um right yes uh i think he was probably not wrong in thinking that the ascension was going to be like a, a mass suicide that did seem to be where it's going but instead this creature or whatever just resets them so right before that happens they all it's not clear how long their time loop is there's one poor bastard who's stuck in a time loop that's only a few seconds long and he's dying yeah and he's dying over and over again but he still has enough time in those few seconds to tell him stay away you can't help me stay away you can't help me 
um, and again, what a what a terrifying and terrible fate. But any one of the component single ideas in the movie could almost house a movie itself. That's the cool thing here. Like these two brothers trying to live a new life outside of a cult could almost be its own movie. This tug of war between the cult and that younger brother could almost be its own movie. The lies that he told to get him out of the cult and why he told those lies and how maybe they were justified or not could be its own movie. And then the time loop. And then the creature. Well, and the guy who hangs himself in the little cabin, like, I really liked his whole... Story? Yeah, like, each separate element of the story, of, of the time loops. And I really like the interactions between the drug, the guy trying to get off drugs and the ex, the husband who had gone missing or whatever, because they were just, like, so funny. I, like, laugh. Like, none of these movies I really laugh. Donnie Darko had some, like, kind of throwaway lines that made me laugh. Um, but I didn't, none of these were, like, funny. Yeah. And I found that, except for that part of that movie, I was like, these guys are great. I would totally want to hang out with these guys. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Um, or the the way the other guy who was hanging himself became pretty magnanimous about suicide. He's like, no, no, whatever you can do to yourself will be better than what that thing will do to you. So absolutely kill yourself. <laughs> but like, you'll still be killing yourself every two weeks or whatever it was for him that he'd have to, to, to work in this cycle. Um, yeah. I appreciate, too, like, they didn't have a big budget, but they had ideas that really worked on that. The whole tug-of-war sequence, where there's this rope that seems to be ascending up into the sky. It's a fairly, you know, accomplishable special effect, but, like, what it suggests is quite big. There's a magic trick where a guy throws a ball up into the air, and it doesn't come down right away. And, And again... That's a really simple to achieve special effect, but it has real impact in the movie. Uh, they're really good at using their their budget to their benefit. Um, I really like these two guys. Like, they, um, I keep on thinking that the next movie they get should be one where like their budget goes up and they get you know, uh, I don't know, a Marvel movie or something like that. But if they want to keep making these like low budget, creepy sci fi horror movies. The yeah, they can make as many of these as as, as they like. Uh, like they, they show different worlds in a very interesting and cheap context. Uh, a, a blur of wind will establish the monster, or like a weird artifact or statue will suggest something completely otherworldly. They don't need some vast computer special effects sequence to to accomplish it. The only glimpse we get of that monster is that really cool aerial shot of the lake and this weird Rorschach shape beneath the boat. But it's really interesting in how little they show us, but how we feel like we've seen a lot. Like, yeah, a lot up to you to try and piece together and figure out, which I appreciated. But with such a little budget, they give us so much to chew over. It feels big, even though the scale of it really isn't. And they're only there for like three, I mean, time loops aside, like three or four days. Like they're not actually physically at the camp for very, very long. long. Yeah. Um, and they don't spend much time beforehand getting, like it's only about like getting to the camp at the beginning. They don't spend too much time getting there, which I thought was really great. Yeah. What did you think of the two leads as actors? I really liked the brother dynamic. Like I believed it. Like I was like, I could totally see... And then when 
have their fights and stuff like it just felt really genuine and authentic and you could really feel this like brotherly like love but also angst of like fuck like dude like you lied to me or like they find the like little treasure chest or something it was in it at the bottom of the lake and yeah they start pack these memories with their family and their friends and and there's misperceptions like I thought it was like this but you thought it was like that you know what I mean and I thought it was I thought their interactions between the two were quite good yeah I'm of two minds of it I think they're fine like they get the job done and uh, because it's their script they worked on this for a long time obviously they have a good rapport with each other um, I think that they're good actors, but maybe not amazing actors. I think they might be better filmmakers than they are actors. And like, I wonder if they had two actors who really kind of got into it. There was something about the younger brother's inability to defend himself that like, it almost seemed more a weakness in his character than his brother's that he was being dominated and I think maybe if we understood the give and take, like the brother had just been in the pole position for so long that he can't not be in control. That like, But he's not an asshole. He's just always looked after his little brother and no one else is going to do it. So that's where it became. It comes from this place of care. It's not this dominating thing. I don't know. I think that that little exchange from the brothers could have paid off better for me a little bit. But by that point in the movie, I was just so into it and wanting them to get out of the time loop. Um, it's sort of profound. Like the younger brother decides he's willing to stay. That even being stuck in an infinite time loop where he has to die at the end of every few months is better than what the time loop, as he looked at it, was outside of the cult where they were doing jobs they hated, failing at every aspect of their social lives and just... No no girls nothing no nothing good going on in their life but the older brother is wise enough to see this is hell you're choosing hell over me but i will stay in this hell with you because i have led you to that choice and uh i think it is really powerful in the film but like i said i think if if it was just pushed up another level, like it's it's a B, but if it was pushed up to an A, I think the emotional payoff would be there in a similar way that like Donnie Darko's emotional payoff was really there. Like if they would have hit me emotionally as well as with the scares at the end of this movie, I would have, like my reservations would almost have vanished. Uh, you know, maybe I could tell myself like he is so weak that he's un unable of telling his brother what he wants. His brother just has to figure it out. Or maybe I could tell myself the cult wasn't explaining it to the boys because it's vengeance for the boys telling lies about them. The characters don't seem to back that up, but I could make more excuses for the movie, I think, if I felt more emotional payoff. It pays off in every other way except for that one small little little area. But I'm happy to see them escape, and I'm really impressed, like I say, by the imagination and the scale of this low-budget sci-fi movie. Like... I like it a lot. It's going to rank high on the list. Um, I just, it's one of those movies where you can sort of see the finish line for it, where it could have been amazing, you know? Well, and I really appreciate it. Like, I thought the, the actor who played the cult leader did just, like, fantastic job of just being this, like, nuanced, um, you don't love him, you don't hate him, you understand why he's appealing. Like, you, you kind of can see why people are drawn to him and why he, like, as that sort of cult leader, like, he really has that, like, but, like, 
endearing. Like, I, I thought he did a really good job with that. Well, that and actor. I did a whole episode on cults uh, earlier this season, and uh, it's a different role than those ones. Those ones are either self-deluded or, like, just straight con men. He knows for a fact there's an entity beneath the lake. Like, there right. is this dark magic. He is not trying to sell you a con. This thing does exist. So right. I think his deck is a little bit loaded in his favor in that way. Um, and, of course, you know, our main character, is, especially the older brother, doesn't want to believe it. But he knows there's something legit about it. That might be the thing that even scares him the most about the cult. It's just a great conversation piece movie. And again, like a lot of the movies we've talked about, there's a lot of meat to it. Um, I think that it's true of like most of the movies we talked about. They're they're flawed but fascinating at the same time. Uh, so like, mm-hmm. I, I will revisit them just for that reason. They're fascinating. Sometimes a movie hits all of its plot points and character points perfectly, and you watch it once and you can sort of just walk away with it, and it's all neat and clean. There's nothing clean about these movies. They kind of leave you in a place where you got to sort it out a little bit. Well, and even at the end, it was like where they were like racing the car to like escape just in time or whatever but then there was this moment of like did they escape is this their time loop are they gonna get stuck is this gonna start all over for them like there was that sort of moment of like what is actually because because before they've been like throwing you all these like curveballs right so you had this i like real moment of like anticipation of like holy fuck, are they going to escape in the car and that's going to be the car accident that starts them back and is that their loop? Their death, yeah. You know, and I thought that was really well done because I was like left thinking about that for quite quite a while afterwards. And you just don't know where the movie's going. Even when you think you know where the movie's going, you don't. And I have such respect for that. The guy in the tent was legitimately terrifying because I was not expecting him. Yeah. (laughs) Because there's nothing else really like gruesome or terrifying about the movie really like in a horror movie sort of sense yeah the guy in the tent was the guy who had the 30 second loop is what really he's talking about he's dying every 30 seconds forever yeah and he was it was like unnerving like i got really spooked by him it was great yeah it's a really interesting movie if you haven't seen it i highly recommend it good enough yep wake up robin this is your date to freedom smile can i go back to where i came from there is no such thing as the place that you came from wow you look fantastic animated i mean you're the sixth one today the sixth what the sixth robin right So Robin Wright at the Congress, or the Congress as it is called, uh, from the director of Waltz with Bashir, which is just an amazing sort of documentary animation uh, biography piece. If you like this movie even a little bit, check out Waltz with Bashir, because I think 
this movie's good, but Waltz with Bashir is kind of amazing. Um, Stanislav Lem, I believe, is the name of the author, which the story that this is based off of is. He's a sci-fi writer from the 60s. He had this movie Solaris done uh, and uh, a, a sort of American remake of it with George Clooney, reinterpreted. This guy gets deep into the mud with idea sort of <laughs> psychological science fiction. And um, so, no, when he wrote the book, it wasn't about, you know, Robin Wright. It wasn't about Princess Buttercup. But it was about how in the future, basically, you could sell your identity. Robin Wright is, you know, a Hollywood actress in her 40s, which is to say she's running out of roles that she can play. <laughs> um, and she's got a very sick child. And uh, Danny Houston approaches her and her agent uh, who's played by Harvey Keitel, to do this sort of scanning thing where they will photograph her on every angle, photograph her every expression, photograph, capture all of these performances, and basically create a computer version of Robin Wright that they can then use for whatever they want. Any given movie, any given scenario, anything, like she won't have to spend all the hours on the set they are basically buying everything but her soul. Her her appearance, the, the product, the outward physical entity of Robin Wright is taken. Um, she is still herself. She's going to be forever. Forever, basically. Um, so the first half of the movie, which is shot in standard live action film, is basically her negotiating that contract and being uploaded and photographed and put into the machine. We also meet her ill son and his doctor, who's Paul Giamatti. Um, but it's another one of these movies where there's a very clear delineation mark in the movie. There's like the first half of the movie, and then there's the second half of the movie. And one of the movie's problems, in my opinion, is how not connected I am to the two things. Like, they do feel like two separate movies, almost, to me. There's a movie about Robin Wright selling her image to this corporate entity. And then there's another movie that's set like 20 years later or 10 years later when she's going to renegotiate her contract. But in order to do that, she goes to the Congress. She takes this substance and a projected image of herself, which we see as an animated avatar, goes into a world full of other animated, animated avatars. And that's how everyone does their business and interacts. Nobody looks like who they are. Everybody's these animated yeah. avatars. Um, and so she goes in there and she meets different people and she renegotiates her contract and she starts to lose her grip or want to reassess what her reality is. Um, and I guess the fair question walking out of it is, what does it all mean? I think we've been here several times this review, like Zero Theorem and, and, and Donnie Darko and this one are definitely just like, Man, what what did I watch? What have I just put myself through? Um, I think kind of like the Zero Theorem, it's an idea movie. Each individual isolated scene and idea by itself is really good. Cumulatively, it's almost overwhelming. This is the third time I've watched the movie now for this podcast. And unlike Donnie Darko or the Zero Theorem, I still don't feel closer to solving the riddle of the movie. I do like the ambition of the movie. I like the world of the animation. 
but I don't think it completely closes the deal for me. Um, I think it's an interesting movie, and if you're into something that's visually stimulating, uh, that's definitely worth a watch. And if you like Robin Wright playing a weird version of Robin Wright, I think that's an interesting thing. A lot of times when actors play versions of themselves, it's like, you know, they always sort of play it assholes. They play like this dick version of themselves, this arch, terrible version of that. And uh, I don't get the feeling that this Robin Wright is the real Robin Wright, but she's a person that I could believe, you know, and a person that you can cheer for. She wants to spend time with her sick child who may, may be going blind, and she's got scruples about selling her body, which is kind of what it turns out to be, but she does it. And can she now double down and do it again? What is she gaining and what has she lost? And what the hell does it all mean? Could you answer any of those for me? Yeah. Oh, well, let me just get right into that for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I really like the premise of Robin Wright playing Robin Wright in this, because at first I was like, when then we meet Harvey Keitel, and I'm like, is, is he Harvey Keitel? No, nope. he's an actor. Like, so everyone else plays an actor, but it, it kind of threw me at first, because I was like, is this happening? Um, I also she sort of lives as, like, off the grid they like live in like an airplane hangar like no tv no phones like no one um you know she and she's very problematic as an actor because she doesn't want to take these roles or she chickens out so no one wants to hire her anymore is the other thing yeah. and she's 44 i think they said right she's yeah. going on to 45 which in like acting that's just like so ancient and uh i just um I really love the premise of like consumption of Hollywood with her that like they just took every piece of her and just consumed her and made her something that she's completely not because the whole thing was like but she can't act in sci-fi movies remember they had to like negotiate her to be in like the sci-fi movies because Harvey Keitel the agent doesn't want her in them because they're such trash and blah 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 and they were like, nope, too bad. You're signing on to this. You're giving up your rights. And and then I think her movie that was like showing on the screen was like Robot Rebel something. Robin Robot Rebel. I can't remember the title, um, which is probably a movie we could like watch for this podcast. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so for me, it was like just like that, that idea of like consumption. And then later when she goes to like 20 years later in the animated portion of the movie and she goes like renegotiate her contract that consumption is just like not enough anymore and so they're actually going to make her into like an edible product that they can sell and consume even more and I just I really liked how they just like uh, hyperbole that like idea of consumption of like the the Hollywood famous actors like the paparazzi and things right yeah um I was going what the <laughs> when it went into the animated portion I like again like I was like at the first part where she was like dealing with it and like the moral conscious of this and should she do this in this time with her son and trying to figure out all these pieces I really appreciated it and then she went to the animated like the congress and started doing these sort of hallucinogenic drugs that induced these sort of animated pieces and I I just kind of like it lost me at that point like I was just like this is also a cool story but it's not the cool story that we started with and I really like the cool story that we started with yeah 
now I'm confused. No, it has me, and then it kind of loses me. You're right. The and in, in the animated world, and when we sort of strip the animated world away again, I don't feel particularly surprised or excited by the revelation therein. But again, I go back to what I said at the start. Like there, individual scenes, I just find strong by themselves. The scene where she's actually uploading herself into the into the machine. And she's getting coached by Harvey Keitel, her agent, who basically... Oh, fantastic. Yeah, he, he comes clean to her that he's in love with her and he, like, uh, bears his soul to her so that she can be able to bear her soul for the machine. And nothing's made of it. It's not like they become a couple afterwards or anything. Like, once she does this, his job as an agent for her is done. She officially says yes to every role that's offered to her. They also make it clear, like, this includes pornography and, like, adult films. Any moral quandary, if she's too good to be in a horror movie or a sci-fi film, once she's signed over her image, she's in every kind of movie. If they want Robin Wright in a movie, they have Robin Wright. And that's the interesting part of it. It's like, what is the, the entity of your self-worth? Like, she still gets to make her own decisions and live her own life. But as far as everyone else is concerned... Robin Wright is this thing, this this piece of entertainment, and she's not even connected to it anymore. Like, what has she lost and what has she gained? And I kind of spent the first half of the movie thinking that she's going to pay a price for this or learn to the, find the answer to those questions. But once we do get into the animated world, it becomes more about these weird people that she meets. She has this almost romance thing with John Hamm character, but he has... Like he's sort of resolved, resigned to this false world, and he does her a favor by exposing the truth. But by giving her that truth, ends the relationship, and ends the false reality. After a point, if the world is that miserable, is this animated universe the better option, uh, or to go to the Matrix? Is ignorance bliss? You know. But the other interesting thing about that John Hamm character is, like, he was responsible for, like, animating the, like, animated, like, the, like, he'd been working on the Robin Wright duplicate for, like, 20 years. Like, so he, like, knew her so intimately, even though he never met the real Robin Wright and, 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 like, had manipulated her into this piece that she wasn't so, like, is he in love with Robin Wright or is he in love with... Robin Wright like I don't know like that was really like creepy but cool like that and he like, still isn't talking to her he's still talking to her avatar yeah, right? yeah right. that's where their connection is made in this false world right yeah so like that was really like I said it was kind of like a creepy love story but I enjoyed the elements of it and then he gives her like a it's like a magic pill or something to bring her back into reality. Yeah. And and I really loved like that she was just yeah, this like working mom who was just like, I wanna be with my kids, like, especially with her son being sick. They don't really talk about the daughter a lot, which I found really interesting. Like she's just kind of a side she comes up again at the end, I guess, but And for someone who's so obsessed with her kids, well, I mean, uh, she's on a quest to find Cody Smith-McPhee, but she sure doesn't spend a lot of time with them in the movie. No. Yeah. No. And, like, doesn't even know that her kid's getting into trouble flying the kites and things like that, right? So, um, 
she was also just like portrayed as this very like I, I did really wonder like how much of this is the character that this Robin oh yeah like it's just kind of meta on a lot of different levels so I was like does she actually have kids is she really kind of problematic does she not take a lot of roles like what's going on with her or is this just all like or if this is 10 years later she's renegotiating her contract how are her kids still kids right how does that timeline work what is her reality and but i also loved how they aged her avatar throughout too like because they keep kind of renegotiating and then she gets fro like cryogenically frozen and then brought back and and um yeah i thought that was really interesting that her her aging character or her avatar just kept getting more and more aged and 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 that's so problematic in Hollywood for women to show that age so and it's funny that they didn't show it in real life they showed it through animation yeah. right like which is yeah I thought that was like pretty layered there um I I enjoyed this movie more than I expected to like it I think like I did I did have like the highest hopes for this movie I was like oh it'll be fine like after it was the last one I watched so after the other five I was like what do we got (laughs) okay let's do this um and I I appreciated it a lot more but I do I do kind of view it as like two distinct halves of again of the whole yeah and again, sometimes movies can get away with this. I said the similar thing like about Full Metal Jacket, Stanley Kubrick movie. There's two movies there. There's a basic training movie and there's a war movie. It doesn't really even feel like one movie. I do like it, but is it a movie or is it two movies? Um, maybe there's a little bit of that there. I think it was a really brilliant choice to choose Robin Wright. Um, because I think she's an amazing actress. I've seen her do like really great things. But no matter how amazing she is, no matter, like, even for the rest of her career, she will always be remembered as Buttercup from Princess Bride and Jenny from Forrest Gump. And she has no control over that. Like, that's just how it is. Like, that is taken out of her hands. And that idea of this is how the world sees you and there's nothing you can do about it, it's just sort of been exploded and, and exaggerated to an absurd level in this movie. And it was a really solid choice having her. Uh, for that. Yeah, she's, she's a big actress, but she's not like Samuel L. Jackson who's in like 782 or anything. Like, she, yeah. you know, like, like, she, yeah, she is not as prolific as some of the other actresses they could have chosen for that role. So I think that there is, there is a real, yeah, that was a really good choice on that part. And then the whole, like, because they do sort of reference her like Sean Penn. Yeah sort of storyline too like people know her for that too and um yeah no I thought it was like I said I enjoyed it but then at the end again I was like what so is what happened like but what does it mean right back to the beginning what does it mean and I think that uh that's where the movie fails maybe more than any of the other movies that we're talking about zero theorem comes close but zero theorem and the congress come close to being unsolvable they're interesting and they ask a lot of questions, but when, at the end of the day, when it comes to what does it all mean, what was it all about, not only do I not have an answer, I start to suspect maybe there isn't an answer. Maybe the idea was to start that conversation and to kind of open doors and to make you think about this stuff, and that was enough. Um, 
So like, and it is enough to give me a passing grade on the movie, but I think it keeps it short of being something truly special. And I felt like Waltz with Bashir felt like a really special movie. And if he keeps on doing these hybrid animated live action movies, like sign me up, I'm, I'm on board. Um, this may not be his masterpiece, but it's definitely worth a look. And again, like nothing I'd ever seen before. Yeah. Like it was very original. It was a cool concept. I loved the idea of, like I said, consumption and just like leaving nothing left for them on their own, like that sort of piece. And um, I, I, I really appreciated that for this movie. through six pretty heady, tough <laughs> science fiction films. Um, I think we're okay. A little bit of a nosebleed, but uh, we, we got through it. We're here. We made it. I'm curious to hear. I, like, I don't know. I feel like we agreed, but the movies are so similar and different that I don't know. I can't even predict. <laughs> really? You don't want to make a guess? <laughs> uh, like as whether we'll, how close the lists are going to be, but... Um, I would love to hear what's your least favorite of these six pictures and why. I am gonna have to put Zero Theorem at six. Okay. I just like don't want to work that hard for a movie, right. and I don't want a movie that's like condescending and makes me feel dumb. <laughs> like I just like it's too much work. I just no, I can't. I don't want to do it. So I just really couldn't. Really couldn't. Couldn't get. Couldn't get through it. It's like maybe if I like went and like watched some of his other movies and was more familiar with him and then went and had watched it, maybe that would have been helpful. I don't know if it would have been helpful. Okay, fair enough. It's okay. it's hard cheese, I, I confess. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to put Congress at number five. This was a tough one for me because I did enjoy it and I liked a lot of the ideas and the premise of it. Um but I just, again, like, I really don't want to be that confused for so much of a movie. And, like, I, maybe I just want it spoon-fed to me a little bit more. Maybe that's just my my cup of tea. But um, I liked it. It was good. I liked all the performances. Like we said, the, the like, speech between Robin Wright and Harvey Keitel was brilliant. That was yeah. a brilliant, brilliant moment. But it was, like, one moment that just wasn't enough. So that's number five. Number four is The Endless. Um, it just kept me guessing, um, and I did think about it, but it didn't, like, hurt to think about it. I just was, like, I was more, like, the first, like, Zero Theater in Congress, like, hurt to think about, whereas <laughs> The Endless, I was, like, more about the possibilities. Like, oh, it could have been like this, or what about that, or all of these other things could have happened. But, like, 
Yeah. So that was number four. Nice. Uh, number three was Donnie Darko. Just because I think I should have watched it 20 years ago. Uh, I think it would have probably been number one had I done that. But here we are. 2021. You feel um, the way you feel, girl. You're in a safe place. Don't worry about it. It's good. I know I feel like I'm going to like get kicked out of the like, cool kid club or something. <laughs> um, yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. It was interesting. Right. Uh, number two is District 9. Um, I just love the effects. I'm a bit... It was... Oh, you froze up again. Like, you enjoyed the effects in what, sorry? I like it. You keep freezing on me. <laughs> Oh, there you go. It's not letting you tell us what you liked about District 9. You keep trying. and It doesn't want want to know. So, District 9, I thought, was, like, simpler and good effects and, like, more of an action movie, and that's just, like, more my speed. I just like the sort of, like, shoot them up, good effects, kill things, leave. Um, And this had more of that, but it also had that sort of think piece that I appreciated, and like I think if you really wanted to dig into this you could like analyze it from a lot of different like race, racial, social classes like there's so many things you could do with this movie if you wanted to but you don't have to and it's still enjoyable yeah. and I like that about it well they keep threatening a sequel so maybe we'll get more District 10 yeah <laughs> uh, so number one is Okja it was just oh sorry again. number one was Okja because it was interesting. It was like novel. Like I'd never seen anything like it. I love movies that want to fuck up the system and like break it down. And like that, it's just like that. I felt that that little girl just wanted to like break it all down and start fresh. Run away to the forest with her like pig hippo. Yeah. Um, and I was like I I I can I sympathize with that. I there are days where I just want to run away to the forest with my pig hippo and oh. like never talk. I just loved um, that little girl. I thought she was so great. I just so charmed by her. Like she just wants yeah. her pet back, and that's something I can so get behind. And ultimately, it was just like, yeah, like a girl and her dog. Yeah. Kind of a story, and I just like you take away all the other elements, and it's just that sort of simple story that, and but was like told in a completely new and beautiful sort of way, like just visually beautiful. I right. thought the movie was really great, so that was mine. That's a solid list. Um, we're not going six for six or zero for six, um, but I think you'll be surprised where we where, where we agree. I guess maybe more than where we disagree. With no joy, I am going to put the zero theorem in sixth place. No way. Wait, I do like Terry Gilliam, and I do think that there is something to the movie. Like there's there's ideas there, and it's not just Terry Gilliam spinning his wheels. But no movie should be this much work. I think this is for Terry Gilliam completists in a lot of ways. If you are on board for Terry Gilliam's madness and his weird, you know, dark sense of humor, I think you might find a meal here. But it is it is not an easy sit, you know. Uh, so it's too much work. It's almost too much work for me, which means it's just too much work. <laughs> uh, in fifth place, the Congress. In some places, this is called the Robin Wright at the Congress, but I've mostly just seen it as the Congress. And again, uh, it's so interesting and it's so beautiful, and yet that's all somehow. (laughs) 
like interesting and beautiful should be enough but like i don't know that that it it's asking maybe us to do all of the work here in a lot of ways it just being unique and pretty is kind of enough for its its own sake but uh if you close that deal with a through line narrative story or even if these weren't the answers but if the movie tried to posit some maybe maybe it's that closure that i'm lacking on it i like it i don't love it and that's where our agreements stop <laughs> okay and i'm actually quite surprised that that yeah i'm relieved actually that you put <laughs> right no I get it. I get it. I get it. And again, like Terry Gilliam has made some tough, tough movies to get into. Like try Tideland sometimes. Somebody explain Tideland to me. I would love that. In fourth place, I am putting District 9. In a weird way, it's it's the most crowd pleasing one of this bunch. But it's kind of, I don't know, it, it, it because it's like more generic in its sort of A, B and C plot. It gives you less to think about. It starts really smart and new, and it kind of ends really familiar. At no point is it not entertaining, and it is a lot of, like, it's worth your time to check it out. So, I mean, I, I don't mean to dismiss it. It seems unkind to put it as low as four. I'm still sort of mystified that it got nominated for Best Picture. I think maybe a little got, a little overhyped, but it's absolutely worth a watch. In third place, Okja. Um... <clears throat> Like I said, I really connected with this little girl and her quest to get an animal back. Sometimes, like, the, the more basic the goal of a protagonist, the more I can get behind it. You know, if it's somebody who's, you know, I don't know, I, I am legend. He's trying to find a cure for the apocalypse. Uh, that that's, that's higher stakes. How about a story about a couple guys who are trying to get laid? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, just keeping uh, a story nice and simple. This little girl wants her... Oakjaw back and she will move fucking mountains to get it done for all the other stuff that's going on in the movie that's the thing that I just adore about it I just love that little girl so much I cheer for her and I celebrate her victory so in third place endless I said a lot of kind of critical things about it but I just love the imagination of the movie I love that it was a low budget but big scale movie like that's a hard thing to pull off I love the ideas in it um, I like again I just you can make excuses for why the movie just doesn't outright explain itself because it, it just doesn't want to it doesn't want to give away the whole game in the first act and I guess you could call that a complaint but I just I'm excited and energized by the movie and I'm just on board to watch whatever these guys make next like I can see them I see great things I see great things in the future and I'm before Donnie Darko I put and I, I hummed and hawed about it I put Donnie Darko at the number one spot mainly because of like when I first watched it that 20 years ago experience in that room full of people and just that feeling of having your mind utterly blown and seeing something that even though I don't completely understand it I understand that this is an original distinct piece and plus I heart Mary McDonald so much like I said it's such a small role but she makes such a meal out of it it introduced the world to Jake Gyllenhaal and like I say, maybe one of these movies that the more you see, the more its power recedes a little bit but for the power it has, I put it in first place, but this wow. was a tough, tough list it was a tough yeah. list um, I guess I just in the end of the day, I had the least amount of scruples with my 
my liking of Donnie Darko. <laughs> so, um, but I did, I, I enjoyed all of the movies. I found Zero Theorem and Congress problematic, but I don't rigid, rigid, uh, resent watching them. And right. maybe not right away, but I can foresee a time in the future where I would go back and try again, you know? Maybe. Maybe. So we agreed on the worst. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you so much, Ray Lee, for doing yet another episode of Rankin Review. Take yep. care of that puppy, and uh, congratulations on your master's completion. Ew. And uh, hopefully we can go hang out and watch another movie sometime. We saw Suicide Squad together. Thumbs up on Suicide Squad. So good. <laughs> so not thinking like yeah. the- there's a movie that does not belong on this list. <laughs> yeah. All right, you have a good one then. Take care, girl. Rayleigh Perkins for coming back yet again to the show and helping me to get into these tough subject science fiction pictures. What do you think? Is there something creepy about the ideas behind these movies or am I just full of crap and desperate to make everything, on some measure or another, a horror movie? Send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankandreview.ca. The podcast drops every other Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening. I would really appreciate it if you told that other movie crazy person in your life about this podcast called Rank and Review. Keep listening, kids.